Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Densky continued our series, The Disruptor, talking about how Jesus disrupts our religion, especially toxic beliefs in religion. We look at Luke 15 and how the religious Pharisees accuse Jesus of hanging out with sinners. Matt goes over five signs of a toxic religion that can affect how we view Jesus. One, preferring distance. Two, creating good and bad categories. Three, behavior that earns God's love. Four, anger and jealousy coming out when others are forgiven. And five, being numb to others who are far from God. We hope you learn from this and enjoy this message. Well, guys, welcome tonight. I'm so glad you're here. We're continuing our series that we started last week called The Disruptor. We are looking at Jesus as a disruptor of a, of a few different things. If you were here last week, I shared some of my story and my journey, and we looked at how Jesus wants to be, desires to be the disruptor of our normal. He desires, desires to change our hearts, but in order to do that, he has to disrupt where we've settled in. He has to disrupt our comfort and our normal. And so we're going to be continuing that series tonight. If it's your first time here, if you're a visitor, first time in a while, you just haven't been, man, I just want to welcome you. I want to thank you for coming tonight. My name is Matt Dinsky. You are loved here, and we believe that you have a place to belong here. We believe Jesus is the source of life and hope and truth in this world, and we hope you discover that for yourself. And, uh, and man, we just, we just try to share him and walk with him. So thank you for coming. I'm excited about this series. This is um, like one of the ones I've been super excited about for a really, really long time. Uh, was anyone in, in adult services this morning? Big church, we call it around here. Yeah, your boy, your boy got to preach this morning, which I always have a really fun time preaching in the big church. I flipped a pancake on a skillet. I think all the adults were like, this guy's such a goon. But I had a good time, man. So please, uh, man, when, uh, I encourage you guys to come every Sunday morning, but especially the Sunday mornings where I'm teaching, I need to, I need to feel the love. I need to hear it because sometimes I'll be like going on something, you know, some joke, and some adults are just, I'm like, all right, bet, okay, feel good about this sermon, right? So I need, when, if you're out there, man, just, I need some love, okay, when I preach on this morning. Hey, thanks, Lucas. And now, too, that's a great now. Um, no, I always have, I, hey, I love you guys too so much. I, I had a great time this morning. I hope I represent you guys well, man. I want our church, I want our adults to know how great you are and, uh, and just this next generation as, as we're fired up about Jesus and what God is doing. So guys, we, we are uh, continuing our Disruptor series tonight and I couldn't be more pumped. If you want to go ahead and just bookmark uh, your Bibles, Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to be. A few years ago, I was... Uh, at this restaurant, and this restaurant had a, an outdoor like patio area, and I was sitting out there, and I was with a group of friends, and there was this guy out there as well, and he was kind of sitting by himself. Some people like to go to restaurants and eat by themselves. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, I, I got no judgment there, but usually if someone's by themselves, it's kind of strange, right? Like you see someone at a restaurant by themselves, you're like, I wonder what their story is. I wonder if they got stood up. I wonder if someone's running late. At least I do. I don't know. I love to people watch, so I'm just all about like, who are you? What are you doing? You know, like, so I just started talking to the guy, and he said his name is William. I was like, oh, cool, William, that's my brother's name, great. So we were off to a good start, and we were just talking, um, full disclaimer, I'm the world's worst small talker. Those who know me really well know that, like, I'm awful at small talking, so I try really hard, like, I'll try really hard, and I always have a few in the pocket to go with. Like, hey, what's your name? Like, that's a classic. It's classic. I use that one pretty often, but you'd be surprised at how, how many times I even forget that one. Uh, I forgot it the first time I met my wife. I, I did not use that whatsoever. First time I met her, I was like, <laughs> okay. So, but I was like, hey, what's your name? You know, we're exchanging. What do you do? Where do you go? And I was in, I think I was in um, college at the time or just out of college or something. But I was like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Like, I go to college. So we're just talking. And then all of a sudden, it got around to, um, like, what, what university do you go to? Like, what are you studying? And I said, oh, well, I go to this Christian university, and, and I'm majoring in Bible and majoring in student and family ministries. And then... Like, it went, it went from like, oh, dude, we're vibing, outdoor patio, restaurant, like, what's up, my dog, to all of a sudden, like, okay, that's cool, man, that's cool. And, and he didn't, like, physically give me that cold shoulder, but you felt it, you know what I mean? Like, you could tell in that moment, oh, I just said something that triggered him to not want to talk to me anymore, 
Wow, like I'm very familiar with that feeling, but I'm getting it right now. It's fantastic. And so, and so in my head, I'm like, okay, what did I say? And I was like, well, he seemed friendly until the part where I mentioned, like, I love Jesus. I wonder what that's about. So I asked him. I said, hey, William, man, I, I just got to ask, dude. I just got to ask. Like, what, what, what happened? Like, what happened? And man, it's totally cool. You're not going to offend me. You can speak honestly. You can speak bluntly. You can speak harshly. It won't offend me. But I'd love to hear your story. And for whatever reason, he just decided to open up to this complete stranger. And I'm sitting at a table. Remember, I've got friends. Like, there's three other guys. I don't... It's, it's hard to, like, be vulnerable to one person, let alone, like, four who are just eavesdropping on this conversation, <laughs> right? And he just starts to talk about his journey in the church. And he shared with me, he said, man, when I was in seventh grade, I was in this Sunday school class, and our teacher was this, like, real strict woman, like, real strict woman. And every Sunday, she, she was just, like, real, like, grumpy and like obey the rules and all this stuff and I was like oh, I know the time and um <laughs> Evie that was good was that a funny I got I got Evie on that one guys wow I said yeah I know the type I'm familiar with with you know people like that and he said man but 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 when I was in seventh grade she told me one time that when I grow up I will never amount to anything dude I just remember thinking in that moment ouch like just feeling hurt for him feeling embarrassed that I'm like lumped into this angry bitter woman right like because you've got to understand in his mind who has turned him off to Jesus was it Jesus no. It was a mean, cranky, grumpy old lady who represents Jesus to this young seventh grade guy. And he was in his late, late 20s, early 30s when I'm talking to him. He has shouldered that memory for decades. Decades. And he is so bitter against God and against other Christians. Think about it. A young seventh grade guy and his Sunday school teacher says, you will never amount to anything. Here's how he interprets that. This woman who represents Jesus, teaches me from the Bible, claims to love Jesus, works. She may not have been on staff, but she was a volunteer. But you know, for a seventh grader, oh, if she's leading this class, she works at the church, so she represents the church. If that's her view, that's the view of Christians. Or that's how they behave, or that's how Jesus behaves. And his whole life, he's been done. And man, I looked at him and I, I just said, dude, William, I can't change what happened and I certainly can't take back what she said to you, but I just want you to know that that woman's comment does not at all accurately represent how God thinks about you. And I am so sorry for the way you were hurt by the church. And we had a, you know, we finished our conversation and it was good. He kind of warmed back up to me. But, but the reality for this young man is that he wanted nothing to do with me once he learned that I was a Christian because of an experience he had when he was in seventh grade. A few years later, I'm hiking in the mountains with this group of students in this like leadership process. And we're trying to get to this trail, but in order to get to this trail, you have to start at this Boy Scout camp. It's like open to the public, so you drive there, and the trailhead's somewhere in the back of it. So we pull in really late. It's about 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. We pull in, and we're setting up camp. And the next morning, the, the guy who, like, runs the camp comes around. He noticed our vans come through in the middle of the night. He comes around and just starts talking to us. He's like, oh, where are you guys from? Like, what are you doing? Oh, cool. And, and just super nice, super accommodating, very friendly, very chatty. Very kind man. Kind of reminded me of Santa Claus. Like an older gentleman just, <laughs> this jolly, like he's super kind. And all of a sudden, he, 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 you know, usually when people see a group kind of like that, they're like, oh, are you guys, like, you're all together. Oh, okay, so what are, what are you guys? Are you guys like a, you're not a scout troop. What are you guys? And we explain, oh, this is like part of our university. This is, he's like, oh, what university? Oh, it's a Christian university. 
immediately. Jolly site director, super friendly, accommodating. Hey, how can I help? What do you need? Do you need to know where anything? Immediately. Okay, bye. Immediately. He's out. The moment he learned that we're Christians, he's gone. A couple months ago, I'm up in the mountains. I bump into this guy. He came over to tell me about um, a big black bear that he had spotted, like, in the site that I was setting up. I was like, cool, <laughs> right? Like, he was being friendly, and his name is Richard, and we just started talking. I was like, hey, man, what are you doing up here? He's like, oh, man, I've been up here for weeks. Some of you guys know this story. Some of you guys know that. I was like, weeks? He's like, yeah, man, I'm just living in the mountains right now. I was like, wow, dope. Okay, cool. Why? Because he's, like, in his 50s. I mean, you know, it's, it's unusual to bump into someone at that age who's decided to be a hermit in the mountains. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, to be honest, I'm trying to do some soul care. And I was like, ooh, I love that. And he's like, and my family's just in disarray right now. Oh, that stings. My dad just recently passed away. I'd been taking care of him for years. And I decided I just needed a few months to process that, to grieve that. But in his will, the way he distributed his will, it's divided my family. And all the siblings are really mad at me because dad apparently, in their mind, right, left, left me more than he left them, even though that's not true. And so he was just kind of on this retreat. And I'm sitting there talking. I'm like, man, was like, like, we're just talking. And I'm like, we're having this gritty conversation. And, and he's, he's receiving some counsel and wisdom and comfort that I'm able. And so he asked, hey, you know, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor down in Greenville, South Carolina. And he goes, oh, oh, okay, okay. Well, it was nice to meet you. Immediately. Done. Show of hands. Help me understand. Have you ever had an experience where a tag word, like Christian, pastor, evangelical, church, anything like that, have you ever had an experience in your life where you or someone you know has been talking to someone else and that word has come out and immediately it all got shut down because that word was used? Show of hands. Let's see. Why? Why is that the case? This this bothers me. It breaks my heart. It should bother you too. Because if, if we're understanding the, the story of Jesus, who we believe is God in the flesh, he's come down and he walked amongst us a couple thousand years ago. A Jewish man with olive skin was walking around claiming to be God. We believe in that. And the narrative of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, the people who were drawn to Jesus are what society would consider bad people, sinners. Jesus' circles consisted of partygoers, drunks, prostitutes, cheaters, liars, robbers, tax collectors, sinners, outcasts, sick people, lame people, unwanted, marginalized, ostracized, Rarely in his circle was someone super religious righteous. Rarely. Sometimes, but rarely. How is it that when God puts on flesh and walks among us, he is so magnetic for sinful people and they all flock to him, they all want to be with him. Sometimes they, they don't swallow his teaching, they, they can't digest everything he's got to teach, but they want to be with him. And it was the religious and the righteous people who were so put off by him. How is it that nowadays, if we just evaluate the normal average Christian, let's just use me for an example, most people who are drawn to me are churchgoers, religious, righteous people, and most people who are turned off by me are sinners or, quote, bad people. How is that the reality? And where did we get it so mixed up? And how are we so okay when three quarters of the room raises their hand and says, I know exactly what you're talking about. How are we okay with this when we know something is wrong and using words like Christian, Jesus, pastor, evangelical, things like that is a turnoff to most people in our country because of some experience they had with the church who is supposed to be the representation of who Jesus is. That's not okay. 
So as we continue our, our series tonight, The Disruptor, I want to talk about, a, a, I think needs to be talked about, but it is sensitive. Toes might get stepped on, but that's okay. Hopefully we can talk about it. But Jesus disrupts religion. That's where I want to go tonight. Jesus disrupts religion. He did when he was alive, and I think he still wants to today. Jesus disrupts religion. Now, I need to put an asterisk here. I need to clarify something. I'm not opposed to religion. Because I've heard some pastors get up and be like, hey, it's not about a religion, man. Religion's whack. It's wrong. Like, I'm not. I'm, in fact, Jesus' half-brother, James, you can read his book down the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 27, James says, hey, this is what religion looks like. Visit the, visit the orphans. Take care of the widows. Do good things. Like James clarifies there is such a thing as healthy religion in the name of Jesus. Religion is simply a structure by which we um, worship and express our beliefs in a lifestyle. I'm not opposed to religion. I'm opposed to toxic religion. I'm opposed to unhealthy religion in the name of Jesus. I'm opposed to a structure that pushes people away because somehow we think it's glorifying God. That's what I'm opposed to. So let me just clarify. When I say Jesus disrupts religion, I think he wants to disrupt toxic religion. And I think there's loads of toxic religion in the American Christian movement. When Jesus came onto the scene a couple thousand years ago, there was a deeply ingrained and embedded religious system called Judaism. And though it started really, really good, with great intentions, over time it evolved and morphed and it became toxic, and it became all about behavior, and it became all about status, and it became all about position. And the people who had the right behavior, status, and position used that to manipulate and control through positions of power other people. And unfortunately, this has been, um, this has been kind of the normal behavior of religion for a long, long time. Man, if I had time, if I had like an extra hour, we'd go through a church history class and just look at how many times this pattern has repeated itself. People receive positions of power, they manipulate it, they twist it, and in the name of Jesus, they distort who Jesus is. It's heartbreaking. And to this entire room, I am so sorry, and if I'm really honest, oftentimes embarrassed, for the way that the church of Jesus has represented Jesus. And if you've ever had one of those burned experiences, burning like someone burned you in the name of Jesus and they misrepresented his love and grace and mercy, I am so sorry. And hopefully we can have a more accurate picture of what good religion, healthy religion looks like tonight and what Jesus modeled. But I think Jesus wants to disrupt religion. And so I want to look at a passage of scripture tonight. Luke 15, I already told you to thumbnail it or, or dog ear it. Um, Luke 15 is a series of three parables, and within this passage, we're going to kind of go through the entire chapter. I'm going to focus just on that third parable, though. I want to highlight five things, five traits that would apply to someone who is uh, unhealthily religious. You have a toxic religion if these five are present in your life. Five things of the unhealthy religious person. Make sense? Good? Oh my gosh, we've turned it back into Sunday morning service. Are you guys with me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was having flashbacks, man. I was having flashbacks. No joke. I flipped that pancake in the skillet this morning, and I was waiting on the adult. Like, yeah, it was like it was like a couple of people. They were like, I think I literally heard. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I love that. All right, Luke 15. Jesus is traveling, he's doing his public ministry, he's teaching the words of God and the works of God. Those are the two legs of Jesus' ministry. And he's hanging out with a bunch of the wrong people. You guys understand what I say when, when I say that, what I mean? Like people that, if you are, let's just use, can we use modern day terminology? Can we use modern day language? If you're a good churchgoer, you're not supposed to hang out with these people. Jesus is hanging out with those people. Okay. The wrong kind of people. Hey, you're not supposed to be with them. They're sinners, right? You guys ever heard of that? <laughs> Give me a break. Okay, so Jesus is hanging out with the wrong people. Now, uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners 
We're all drawing near to him. I think I have that verse there. Tax collectors and sinners, we're all drawing near to him. We don't like tax collectors. If we're really honest, we still don't like them today, right? <laughs> like, taking my money, man. But back then, it was even worse. Back then, it was even worse. Rome was an oppressive government, but they needed to collect taxes from the Jews. They didn't want to send Romans to do it because the Jews hated the Romans anyway because they've, they've dominated the Jews and now governing over them. So Rome came up with a fantastic idea. Why don't we just get Jews to collect taxes for Caesar? That way they'll hate them and they won't, they'll still be angry at us, but it's not like a Roman is going to your door. It's a Jewish person. And so imagine a government has come in and conquered you. You do not like them. And yet you work for them to go take money from your fellow countrymen who are also being ruled and governed by this twisted government. Nobody liked tax collectors in Jesus' day. They were considered traitors, betrayed their own people to collect money for Caesar. So nobody liked tax collectors. And then this whole other category of sinners, and that could include everybody, all sorts of people, were all drawing near to Jesus. That's how Luke 15 verse 1 begins. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, complained. So remember, modern-day language. Pharisees were like the religious elite of the day. They were this religious group. The scribes were people who would like devoted themselves to the Word of God. We could, modern-day language, the pastors and theologians of the day. Grumbled and complained, saying, hey, this guy receives sinners and he eats with them. <gasps> the audacity! But you got to understand, in a Jewish mindset, to break bread with someone is a symbol of friendship. It's not like it is today. Today you go to cookout, you meet someone, oh, bet, what's up, dude? Oh, you don't have anyone to sit with? Oh, come over here. Like, yeah, you're friends. But in Jewish culture, to sit down and break bread was a high symbol of friendship. So think about it. The religious leaders of the day are seeing this person who claims to be one with God and on this mission and he does the will of the Father and he's doing these miracles and he's teaching the word with authority and he's disrupting religion, he's disrupting their positions of power and they don't like that, they're losing control and they sense it and they're getting upset because he's disrupting their status quo. Hey, you're not supposed to hang out with these people and certainly not supposed to eat with them. That means they're friends. Yeah, seeing this, right? Like, that's the accusation. He can't be friends with them. They're sinners. <laughs> that's the accusation. You guys hear how ridiculous that is? But when your worldview is religion, you get offended by things like this. When status and position and power are your goals, you get offended. In fact, Jesus was oftentimes accused by the Pharisees, if you really knew who that person was, you wouldn't be with them. Like that was a common accusation against Jesus. And they're getting mad at him here because he's sitting down and eating with people that they considered to be less worthy. They were sinners. Let me ask you, were the Pharisees sinners? Were the scribes sinners? So what's the problem? See, that's one of the things religion does. It inflates your own view of self. Somehow I'm righteous. Somehow they're not. Give me a break. So Jesus, in response to this accusation, sounds like, honestly to me, it sounds like a first grade playground. Hey, you can't be their friend. You're supposed to be our friend, right? Like, that's what it sounds like to me. Jesus responds to this accusation by telling three stories. The first story, which you can see it in Luke 15 there, I, do, I don't have it on the screen, but I'm just gonna go over it. He says, hey, there was a shepherd who had 100 sheep, and he loses one of those sheep. If that shepherd were being a good shepherd, would he not go and seek out the lost sheep? No, thank you, <laughs> thank you guys. Don't leave me hanging like that. Don't leave me hanging like that. Yes. What good shepherd would be like, uh, another one down. Well, that's one less I got to count, right? Not, no. You'd try to find it. 
And Jesus says, and once he finds it, would he not throw it over his shoulders, rejoicing, call his friends up, throw a found my sheep party and rejoice? That's what he's saying. Wouldn't he rejoice saying, I found my sheep? Dude, I want to go to one of those parties. I bet that party would be lit. Found my sheep party. I'm about to lose a sheep and go find it just to throw that party in. The next story he tells, the next story he tells is about a woman who loses a coin. Some of you guys are like, oh. <laughs> She's a coin collector. I guess. I don't really know. Don't, don't look. Hey, look. Don't pretend like when those state quarters were dropping that you weren't trying to plug in your little map with every single state quarter that was coming out. You know. Grandpa did that? Are you serious? I did that. I'm not your... That's a burn. That hurt, Evie. I retract that previous compliment I gave you for laughing at my joke. So he says, all right, a shepherd had a sheep, but he lost him. Would he not go and find it? A woman has a coin collection, but she loses a coin. She turns her entire house upside down, looking over sofas, putting her fingers down in there. Oh, I hate that feeling, man. You feel like a thousand crumbs, ah, uh, but you gotta, you gotta find the Apple remote. They make it like as big as a thumbnail. It slides down in there. Anyway, and I know you can use your phone. I get it. I just want the remote. All right. So she's like turning her house upside down trying to find this coin and Jesus says, and once she finds it, does she not rejoice? This woman throws a found my coin party. I mean, it's getting hyped up in Old Testament times. Man. The party, by the way, probably cost more to throw than the value of the coin she lost. I mean, Jesus is telling this story in a way that's like, no, wait, that, but that doesn't, that's not logically sensible. Well, she lost a coin, but she throws a party that's more expensive than the, and Jesus is trying to illustrate the love of God. Like, yeah, God's love is that radical. Shepherd loses a sheep, he goes and looks for it. A woman loses a coin, and she goes and looks for it. A father, this is the third story he tells, a father loses a son. That's the third story he tells, and that's where we're going to pick up. In verse 17, or I'm sorry, in verse 11. But here's two things I want to highlight. Remember I said I'm going to give you five points? The first thing, you know that you have a toxic religion you know that you have a toxic religion if you prefer distance from people who are different than you. This is how this whole chapter begins. Luke chapter 15. Jesus is hanging out with sinners. The scriptures say tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And what do the religious people do? Hey, you can't, that's not supposed to happen. They can't be sitting, they can't be eating together. What is that, a lunchable? Oh, the pizza kind. Oh. You have a toxic religion if you prefer distance to people who are different than you. If you walk around your schools, for some of you homeschooled, if you walk around your hallways at home, <laughs> I don't know. When you walk around, Because people have reputations, don't they? You know what I'm talking about. When you would actually prefer for the gap to exist based on their reputation, you have toxic religion. When you're unwilling to take steps towards someone because of who they are or what they're known for or what they've done, you have toxic religion. When you're not willing to even associate, be seen with, be friendly towards someone who's considered the wrong type or a sinner, you have a toxic religion. It's exactly what the Pharisees were getting angry at Jesus for. If you claim to be God, you would not be with them. The second principle of toxic religion, based on verses 1 and 2, is that you create good and bad categories of people. And namely, you're always good, and they're always bad. 
You ever notice how the Pharisees do this all the time with Jesus? Like, hey, we're the good ones. Why do you spend so much time with the bad ones? If you really knew who they were, you wouldn't be with them. You'd want to be with us more because we're the good ones. What makes someone good versus someone bad? Now, before we get crazy philosophical, hear me out. I do believe in evil. I do think there is a presence and problem of evil in our world. And I think people can do very evil things. But when our religion says, I'm going to categorize all these different people up based on their reputation or some mistake they made in their past. Yeah, I'm going to define their future based on that past. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to marginalize them. I'll never be their friend because of what they've done. All of a sudden, you've just created a category in your mind where you're better because you haven't done what they've done. Were the Pharisees and scribes sinners? Not a trick question. Were they sinners? Yes. Are you a sinner? Yes. Am I a sinner? Oh, that hurt, Abby. You were really quick to answer that one. Yes, I am. I am. When someone is worse than you, basically what you're saying is you're less of a sinner than them. Which is odd because you needed the exact same death of Jesus that they needed to cover yours. When you create good and bad categories for people, which then leads to distance, you have a toxic religion. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, immersed himself with the wrong kind of people. And he was the only one who would have ever even had the right, because he was perfect, morally perfect. He'd be the only person ever to even have the right to say, yeah, I probably am a little better than them. And yet he gave himself away to them. So Jesus tells three stories, shepherd who loses a sheep, woman who loses a coin, father who loses a son. We're going to pick up in verse 11. Third story, father who loses a son. Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Basically, when you die, whatever inheritance that is, go ahead and give it to me now. And so the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a faraway country and he squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. He has no money now, there's a famine hitting and he's starving. And so... He went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was so longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and yet no one gave him anything. So rich boy, entitled, spoiled dude, comes to his dad and basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just go ahead and give me the inheritance now. Dad does. And he goes and he just lives whatever life he wants to live with this money. He squanders it. He wastes it. He spends it recklessly. We learn a little bit later in this passage that part of how he spent it is just on prostitutes. Like the dude just goes and he goes wild. Like he's just out there living whatever life he thinks is going to make him happy until he spends it all. And now he has nothing. And now all of a sudden a famine hits and he is starving. He is in need. And so he's like, man, I'm desperate. And so he goes and he hires himself out to work on a pig farm which, by the way, pigs were considered very unclean animals for a Jew. You weren't, even, you weren't allowed to eat them. So this is a very humiliating thing for this young man. And he's so hungry. He's looking at pig slop and literally, like, licking his own chops. He's like, mm, man, that looks good. <laughs> like, he is that hungry that he wants to eat what the pigs are eating, and yet no one will give him anything. And then he has this bright idea. He says, oh, you know, I really, I really was rude and mean to my dad, but he's still my dad. And he comes up with this idea. Look at what he does. He says this, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I perish with hunger. I know what I'll do. I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, the man knows I've blown it as his son. I've like destroyed that relationship. But my dad has servants who work his property, like they help out, and they're all very well taken care of. They have more than enough to eat. If dad won't take me back as a son, maybe he'll take me back as a servant, and maybe I can work my way back home. That's his plan. I'll go to my dad and I'll say, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Would you take me on as a servant? Would you let me work for you? so that I can be fed. That's his plan. What's wrong with this plan? No one? Oh, GG, what? Can you say it louder? I don't think they heard you. That's beautiful and right on the money. So the young man's mentality is, in order for my dad to take me back, love me, provide for me, I have to now earn this, deserve this. You have, sign number three of toxic religion, you have toxic religion if your mentality is behavior earns God's love. Behavior earns God's love. This is how the Pharisees operated. If we say enough, do enough, act the right way, if we memorize enough scripture, if we teach enough, if we live enough, do you know there were such things called bleeding Pharisees? Because they were so cautious about not looking at a woman because they didn't want to lust that they would just keep their eyes down the whole time and their forehead would bump into walls and they would start bleeding down their faces. True story. Now, I'm all for like, hey, man, let's protect our hearts and our eyes and see our our sisters as worthy and and not and not objectify them i'm all about that but when you're going to the extreme of like blood rushing down your face because you've taken it to this degree of like oh well look up wow <laughs> like you might have some behavior problems man you have toxic religion if somewhere in you you think behavior earns god's love am i about Am I about behavior that, that responds to faith? Absolutely. Jesus teaches many times, hey, if you love me, you will obey me. Like That's just that's part of any relational dynamic. If I love my wife, I'm going to be faithful to my wife. But I don't love my wife to earn her love in return. It's a whole different scenario. If you have disciplines in your life, like reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, telling others about Jesus, meditating on the word, praying, those are fantastic if they're in a response to how much God already loves you. But if you're doing any of those things to somehow earn God's love, toxicity has crept into your idea of what God's love looks like. He loves you, period. But we play this game, don't we? Like, oh man, I slept in today. I didn't read my Bible this morning. I know what I'll do. I'll wake up 10 minutes early tomorrow, and I'll do a double reading. Mm-hmm. Anyone ever been there? It's okay. You can admit it. A lot of nodding heads, not a lot of raised hands. I'm like, you can admit it. It's okay. I've done that before, right? But what's that mentality? Oh, I messed up. How am I going to make that up? I'll double up. Since when did God's love become about, for every time you mess up, you now have to tick off the repair. Oh, you didn't read your Bible this day? Well, you better read it twice tomorrow if you want to get even. When, what is that about? Why do we feel the need to earn God's love and favor by, by tipping the scales so that they're balanced out again? And I want to be very, very honest with you guys. In American Christianity, this has leaked deeply into how we understand God's love. We have virtually little to no understanding of what grace actually looks like, let alone how to apply it to our own lives and certainly how to apply it to someone else's life. I'm not giving a green light for, hey, just live however you want, man. There's abundant grace. It's infinite. No, that's abusing God's grace. What I'm talking about is using God's grace, which is there for you. You cannot breathe without the grace of God. 
And yet when we mess up, our mentality immediately goes to, how can I make this right? There are certain religions that say, well, if you want to make it right, you've got to pray five times this prayer, and then you'll be made right. Oh, so actions couldn't save me, but actions are going to forgive me. Okay, no. What are you talking? No. You cannot earn God's love. It is already yours. It's already yours. And nothing you do can ever, ever define God's love for you. It's already to the max. He can never love you more and never love you less. So the young man decides, okay, I'm going to go home. I'm going to give my father that speech. The father is looking for his son. Verse 20, he arose, he came to his father while he's still a long way off. The father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced and he kissed him. Man, what a great dad. Man, you know so many dads would be like, "Mm mm-hmm, I knew this day would come. I knew you'd come crawling back, right? Get the belt out, right, like this. And this dad is just watching for his son, sees him on the horizon, runs to him, which, by the way, was a very shameful thing in Jewish culture because men wore robes and you weren't supposed to show your legs. So this dad is, like, hiking up his, (laughs) like, like sprinting across the field. And all the servants are like, oh, no, right, like... But the dad humiliates himself to go greet his lost son. He embraces him. He kisses him. And the son begins his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can say, but take me on as a hired servant. Before he can even say that, the father interrupts him. And he says to his servants, hey, hey, bring quickly the best robe we have and put it on him. And bring a ring and put it on his fingers and shoes on his feet. And get the fattened calf and kill it. We're about to have a feast tonight. And let us eat and celebrate for this My son was dead, and he's now alive again. He was lost, and he is found, and they began to celebrate. Wow. That's grace, by the way. Undeserved, unmerited, love and acceptance. Now, there was an older son, and he was out in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. Dude, we're not just talking about like, yeah, we're going to have a good meal. It's probably going to be good. We're going to... You know, play categories. It's going to be real fun. Dude, the dad called a DJ up. He's like, you better get here because we about to party in Jerusalem tonight. Kill the, that's Jerusalem, by the way. Kill the fattened calf. <laughs> Father hosts a dance party because his son came home. The older son hears it out in the fields. He's out in the fields like plowing away. He's got a hoe. He's like raking the garden. All of a sudden he hears, what is that? What is that? Who's partying right now? It's time to work, right? Like that's his mentality. Bass thumping, he's angry. So he asks one of the servants, he said, hey, what's going on? And verse 27, the servant said to him, your brother's come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's returned. Uh, He's received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go. Sign number four, you have toxic religion. If you are angry or jealous when others are forgiven. If you get angry or jealous when you see someone else experiencing the love of God that you experienced once, and for some reason you feel protective of it, it's like, no, wait a minute. That's the same mentality of the Pharisees. Now, wait a minute. Don't don't you know who they are? You're telling me they believe in Jesus now? Okay. You want to know how many conversations, ignorant conversations I had with people when Kanye West decided he was going to believe in Jesus? You know how many Christians were like, it's not real. How do you know that? Um, Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? Yeah. Just like the prostitutes who came to Jesus, do you know who they were and what they've done? Do you know the reputations they have? Look, I'm not saying saying Yeezy's like the the flyest example of what uh, a good at past looks like. But who am I to say that that's not real? Time will tell. But I'm not going to sit here and be like, this idiot, he's not real. Illuminati, he's just trying to make some records. Like, oh, okay. When you get angry or jealous, when other people experience God's forgiveness, you have a toxic religion. When you can't celebrate, when God is celebrating, by the way, you have a toxic religion. 
So the, the older son won't go in. The dad goes out to plead with him. He entreated him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've served you. I've never disobeyed you, right? He's, he's, um, his actions were deserving of God's love. That's toxic. I've never disobeyed you. And you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friend. Like he's pouting. You never threw me a party. That's what he's doing. He's pouting. I did all this and you never threw me a party for me and my friends. <laughs> Verse 30. But when this son of yours, interesting language, not brother of mine, but son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And, and the father says to the son, son, you are always with me and anything I have is yours. All of mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. The fifth sign that you have toxic religion, the religion that Jesus, I think, has come to disrupt is this. When you have grown numb to others who are far away from God. When you don't even care about it. The son's argument is, I've been with you. I've been in the fields. I've been working. I've been obedient. Now listen, if you have the eyes to see it, this story is a metaphor. The older brother represents the Pharisees, the ones who are claiming, we've been obedient. We've always done what you've wanted, God. We've memorized scripture. We lived a life. Man, we've done all this stuff. Remember, they're angry at Jesus for hanging out with sinners, right? The sinners that he's hanging out with represent the younger brother of this story. Those who are far away from God. And the Father represents God the Father, who is eagerly waiting and watching for his children to come home so that he can celebrate. But the Pharisees are off in the fields. Hey, man, you, we don't, what's going with? You're eating with them? And God's like, guys, anything I have is yours. You should be celebrating with me. Listen, the fifth sign that you have toxic religion is when you've grown numb to those who are far away from God. Think about Luke 15 as a whole. Bear with me for a minute. Think about Luke 15 as a whole. The religious are angry at God for spending time with sinners. Jesus tells three stories. A sheep was lost and someone went to find him. A coin was lost and someone went to find it. A son was lost and... You stayed in the fields and kept working. Did you guys, you guys notice the flow, how no one went to go look for that lost son? And in the other two stories, what was lost was sought after? Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you have been priding yourself for so long on your obedience that you've forgotten to care that there are people who aren't in the fields with you. They don't know the love of the Father like you claim to. And you don't even care. In fact, you're going to get angry at me because I'm with them. You older brother should have left the fields and gone to find your other brother. You should care that he wasn't home. But because you don't care, I had to put skin on and do it for you. That's what Jesus is saying. But down, Mike, drop that, Pharisees. If you are numb to the fact that there are people who do not know Jesus, and it doesn't bother you, it's never kept you awake at night, it's never burdened you, you might have a toxic religion. Because you're focused on the fact that, well, at least I have it. I mean, I'm good. I'm covered. I don't know about them. If it doesn't bother you, that bothers God. Jesus has come to disrupt religion. Is there such a thing as good religion? Absolutely. But is there such a thing as toxic religion? Yes. Why is it that so many people we know, our friends and our family, are so put off by those who claim to follow Jesus when Jesus himself drew the masses of people who were far from God? Something's missing. We're not doing it right somehow. Toxic religion exists when you prefer distance as opposed to proximity. 
You ever notice how Jesus was always three feet away from someone? Like he would always roll with people in proximity. I think transformation happens within three feet. Because that's where intimacy happens. That's where getting to know one another happens. It's hard to build trust from a distance. If you prefer distance, if you create categories in your mind of who's good and who's bad, if you think that behavior earns God's love, if you get angry or jealous when others come to Jesus and you doubt the whole thing and you're just bitter about it, if you're numb to people who are far away from God, you have toxic religion. Maybe you don't have all five, but maybe one or two of those are striking a bass chord in your soul right now. I would encourage you to seek those out. Why? Why? Why am I getting convicted about that? And ask God, man, have I allowed unhealthy ideas of religion, of you, of others to come into my heart? Have I allowed culture to define what this looks like rather than you or your word? Jesus, would you soften my heart? Because Jesus did the complete opposite of all of these things. Jesus did not prefer distance. He left heaven to become right next to us. He didn't create categories of who's good, who's bad. He simply loved and allowed people to come to him. It was not behavior that earned God's love, but God's love leads us to respond to it with certain behaviors, and he certainly modeled that. He rejoiced when people came to know God, and he was so burdened by the fact that so many were far away. How have we come so far from what Jesus modeled? Could we be a generation that rises up and says, all right, no more toxic religion. We will pour ourselves out. We will make Jesus known by being known ourselves. We will get over this whole thing of like, I don't want to be with them because they don't believe in Jesus. Like, dude, they need to, so why wouldn't you want to believe in them? What if we were a generation that said, we will create what healthy religion looks like and go after people with love and grace and tenderness and mercy and not judgment and, and, and not conditions and not parameters? And what if we actually revealed Jesus to them, the way that we know Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for disrupting religion because religion at times can really get unhealthy. We can come so far away from your ideas and your designs. It can become all about the rules and the rituals and those things are certainly important, Jesus, but I think your word is pretty clear. The most important thing is love. And when we stop loving people, when we stop loving people, we completely misrepresent who God is. Would you call us into a deeper understanding, a healthy religion, a healthy way to pursue you and love you and worship you? Would you help us give our ourselves away to those in need? Would you help us be magnets for people? Your love is so appealing. Jesus, I just pray the world would know that, but they're going to know that through us. Would you help us do that in the right way? We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.